This is the murderer you know. Doing my dance moves to the intro music. Hey girl, hey. Hey girl, hey. So, week two. Happy week two. Booker, we back at it again. <laughs> this time with real murder. <gasps> Oof. <laughs> I don't know. Do you think, now here's the question. Do you think they're ready for that? I think they're ready. I think they're ready. You think we're ready to just dump, jump. You think that we are ready to just jump right into it. I feel like you got to start on a high note. And I also feel like it is July 7th and it's, almost perfectly exactly the three-year anniversary of this event why does it feel like it was approximately 30 years ago <laughs> covid <laughs> <laughs> i feel like i don't even want to say that word and like preserve it forever <laughs> i rebuke that <laughs> Let's just record right on over that like you used to do with like VHS tapes. <laughs> Take it out. Inappropriate. So yeah. Ruined, ruined the whole vibe. <laughs> I feel like the timing is is good. Is I mean shitty. It's a shitty thing, it's but it's good timing. Right? So yeah. And also. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. I just oh. think it's going to be good. I so felt like you had something else. I felt like you had something else big to talk about right well, there. I, what are you I withholding? Wanted to say, I wanted to say, but I felt like it didn't go with what we were talking about. So I didn't want to just like slide on off into left field. But I wanted to say, don't forget that we're doing a giveaway. So if you- To me, I'm getting things? No, bitch. You aren't <laughs> getting anything. You're getting to hang out with me. Oof. The biggest <laughs> gift. But our amazing listeners, and thank you for listening, by the way, are giving away some cool merch. So if you share one of our posts, share one of our episodes, tag us, and then send us a screenshot via our email or DMs, or if you write a review on Apple Podcast same thing. Send us a screenshot of that. You will get some merch until we run out. We are, we will eventually run out. <laughs> well, what, what can you tell us about the giveaway merchandise? Is that, is that something that we're keeping to ourselves at this time? I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe give a, give a hint round. It's round. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. Very, very. It has our enough. logo on it. Ooh. Okay. Is that's that all better. That's Is actually that all we need to know. Okay. Cause that logo though. It's good. Yes. I'll ask the, I'll ask the artist if she wants a shout out and I'll, I'll shout her out if she's cool with it. Oh, good idea. Yeah. But anyway, without further ado, I think let's get into a, yeah like the right story now. right oh, now okay let's right. do it hold on snacks water <laughs> check 
Okay. All right. So once upon a time <laughs> on July 9th, 2019 at 1:44 in the morning, 911 received a call to report a stabbing. So when officers arrived at the scene, there was no sign of forced entry. All the glass in the windows and the doors of the home was intact. There, you know, was no sign of sign of forced entry at any of the doors. Um, <laughs> but there was a lot of evidence as to what had taken place. So I'm going to talk a little bit. I, I want to talk first about the evidence that they observed and that was collected at the scene of the crime. So there was a trail of blood. Well, first, I think I should say there was a dead body. Ooh, oh, oh, okay, so okay. That's important. Before the blood, there was a body. Mm. They, so the officers went into one of the back bedrooms and they found the body of an older woman. She was laying near her bed on the floor with her feet toward the headboard and her head toward the footboard. So it was her house. It was her house. Yes. Mm. So she was on the floor. Like I said, her clothes and the carpet were covered, soiled with a lot of blood, presumably blood. I love reading these like police reports because I guess they're trying to be like, I don't know, a, objective or something. And they're like, oh, it, it, it's a red substance consistent with blood. Yeah. I'm like, they they can't call it blood because that's a legal conclusion. So, well, oh. a, fa a factual con conclusion, oh. not a legal conclusion, but a okay. factual conclusion nonetheless. Okay. So she's laying on her side, face down. She's sort of like almost curled up in like the fetal position. Like she has her legs bent at 90 degrees at the hips and at the knees. Mm. And she had yellow, blue, and black bruises on her forehead, her right eye, and the bridge of her nose. Now I'm not like a medical examiner, any sort of medical professional, but I understand that different colors of bruises. And I don't know if you would know this either. I'm just throwing this out into the world. Different colors of bruises sometimes indicate that they're in different stages of healing. That's funny. I actually had that come up in a jury trial last year. And uh -huh. you're absolutely right. Different colors connotate different stages in, in healing, in the age of the bruise. You can't necessarily age a bruise, mm -hmm. but you can say that a, you know, a bruise that's like reddish in nature, because red is actually one of the first colors that develop. So like a bruise or an abrasion that's reddish in nature is going to be mm -hmm. newer than a bruise that's yellower or browning in nature, because that means it's getting closer to the healing stages. So very interesting. So I, I right off the bat, when I was reading these reports, thought that that was very interesting that she had bruises that were potentially in different stages of healing. Mm. So in addition to the bruises, she also had band-aids on her right hand, her cheek, and a very large band-aid on her neck. Next to her, there was a napkin with, again, <laughs> what appeared to be blood, as well as like a small trash can with other napkins and paper towels and things in it that also seemed to have blood in them. Under the victim's face, there was a pair of glasses. There was also a large butcher knife with a black handle, which couldn't be seen entirely by investigators because the tip was sort of obscured under her head. And her bed sheets also had some blood on them. Creepy. There was a single bloody handprint on her bed sheets, as well as some bloody smears. Said that? It literally Ooh. said that. I know. I Ever. know. So creepy. Oh, I don't like that. So don't let's like see. Uh, yeah. 
very, very weird. All the nightmares. All the nightmares. <laughs> Ooh. Bloody handprint. <laughs> dun, dun. So let's see. I want to talk a little bit now that I actually mentioned there was indeed a dead body and not just evident. I'll talk a little bit more about the evidence now. So there was lots of blood evident. There was a trail of blood, in fact, from the bedroom that the victim was found in down the hallway through the kitchen and into the garage. There was lots of evidence collected from the scene, including that butcher knife with the black handle. I didn't mention that that butcher knife had a red stain on it. Not that that's super shocking. They also (laughs) took the bloody sheets, pillowcases, tons of towels, lots of clothes, a gray shirt, socks, a tan bra with red stains. They took all those paper towels from the trash can and also in the room and also from the the kitchen trash can. They also swabbed a lot of the stains. So from the carpet and leading all the way down the hallway, there was also blood that appeared to have been cleaned up in the ensuite bathroom in that room where the, the woman was found. The bathroom counter had blood on it, but it was kind of like, you know, looked like it had been kind of smeared around and attempted to be cleaned. Feel- I can't really deal with the fact you're doing like the wax on, wax off with the, <laughs> with the blood right now. What was that I word? I think you that's used? how I would Pan- clean pantomime. <laughs> I think that's how I would clean blood if if I found myself in this situation. <laughs> oh my god! Well, at least you've got a plan. All right, all right. Well, I I know I'm blowing you up, but who who is this lady? Who lives in this house with her? What is the deal? We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. Let's keep talking a little bit about the evidence that that they collected just for a couple minutes at least. All right. All right. So I was saying they swabbed a lot of stains from the carpet, the bathroom counter, the front hallway. They also found blood that they swabbed on the power button on the washing machine, the living room floor. There was a jug of Clorox wipes that had blood on them and Clorox spray. Um, Somebody was cleaning. There was a lot of attempts at cleaning up. It sounded like to me. Yes. I was reading through the police reports and they also found blood in the floor of the kitchen and the floor of the pantry, the bottom shelf of the pantry. And they swabbed all of that stuff. Oh, and like I was saying, they found a lot of clothes. Like to me, it sounded like more clothes than would be consistent with just this one event. Like they found a trash bag of clothes. They found clothes and towels in the dryer that had obviously just been freshly laundered. Like in fact, the dryer kept kicking on when the investigators were there and startling them. So they eventually unplugged it so that it would stop kicking on. That's funny. So in the kitchen, they found a black trash bag hidden in the bottom of the trash can that had a pair of bloody shoes in it that were a size six and a half, which was the victim size. Apparently they also found khaki pants and a gray pullover that were heavily stained with blood in that bag. They also found in that hidden bag that was in the bottom of the trash can, like under the empty Clorox tub and under all this other trash, a set of white curtains with blood stains on them and a curtain rod. And they noted that the curtains were the same ones that were elsewhere in the house, including in the victim's room, but they also made note that the only curtains in the house that were missing were from the hallway window at the front of the residence and that the curtain brackets on that window were damaged as if the curtain had been yanked down. And then the curtains and the rod for the curtains were in the trash can. So it's like the crime scene is spread all over this entire all house. over the house. And like I said, I mean, they found so many different pairs of clothes and stuff. Like it, it didn't seem like 
so there's a victim and then there's obviously the, what do you call them? The murderer? Is that it? <laughs> you can call them a lot. You can the call suspect? them the, the assailant, the suspect, the perp. There's lots of words. So this woman, it turns out she was, by the way, oh, I hope you guys can't all hear my dog, but I feel like you probably can. <laughs> yep, totally can. Who was found. She was 72 at the time of the crime in 2019. She was born in 1946. And it just so happened that at the time she lived with her 29-year-old daughter who was born in 1989. And it turns out that the 29-year-old daughter is the one who called 911 at 144 on that fateful morning to report so a stabbing. She's there, obviously. She's there. She lives there. She helps her mom take care of the house because her mom didn't want to move out, lose her home, move into any sort of assisted living place. But she kind of needed help, I guess, with things like cutting the grass and upkeeping the place. So they'd been living together for a little while. This, this woman, the younger woman who lived with her mom, she was also working as a waitress at a really popular. So this is in case anyone forgot the murderer, you know, so obviously I know this person. I know who we're talking about. <laughs> All right. In fact, she was my childhood best, best friend, inseparable best friends. And we were still very close into middle school and high school, not as much in college, but I think, you know, that tends to happen as people move away and grow up. But she, she at the time was working as a waitress at a very, very popular restaurant in our hometown. In fact, my parents bumped into her there a couple months before the murder and she seemed really happy. They said she seemed a, a little off, but not anything that they thought much about until, you know, hindsight bias. Once they knew she murdered her mom, they were like, oh yeah, she seemed a little off, but she, she what? She had, she had moved out for a period of time, right? Yeah. 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 Right. I mean, she, she moved out, went to college and lived on her own for a while. I don't know exactly when she moved back in. I just know that it was somewhat recent to the 2019 event that took place. And yeah. So. All right. All right. So she calls, she yeah. calls, they get mm -hmm. there. There's mm -hmm. blood everywhere. Mm -hmm. where, where is she at? What is she doing? So when they arrived, she was in I mean, not shockingly, I think the garage where the trail of blood led and she was on the phone with the 911 dispatcher and she was smoking a cigarette in the garage. She, they described her as appearing very calm and they asked her what happened and she told them without much hesitation, even though they asked her, you know, and I mean, this would be your, like, they told her if she didn't want to talk until she had a lawyer and her, her, what are they? Miranda rights. Is that wrong? Right. Yep. Mm -hmm. She said she didn't have any hesitations about talking to them. So they talked to her a little bit at the house and then they took her down to the police station for further questioning. So I'm trying to make sure I'm not forgetting anything really important. What did she this. say? I thought you found out a little bit more about what she said to 911. What did she say? Did she just she say 
He didn't, I'm not sure exactly what she said to 911, but she told the officers a lot of, a lot of what led to the, the accident. So, or not accident, the, the stabbing, the unfortunate <laughs> stabbing. So when they're interviewing her at the station, she explained to the officer that she had moved, like I said, that she'd moved back in with her mom to help her take care of the house because she really wanted to continue living on her own. And she told the officers that they had been arguing since July 7th when the younger woman got home from working a breakfast shift at the restaurant where she worked and they were arguing because which is so interesting I just I love the psychology behind these cases because first of all like this was a person who I loved who I was super close friends with and I never ever would have thought that she would do something like this you know what I mean so it's interesting from a a number of areas for me. But one of the really interesting things for me here was that she told the officers that what she and her mom had been arguing about was that her mom wasn't taking care of herself. Like she wasn't eating, she wasn't showering, and that she wasn't helping around the house as well was another of her daughter's complaints. So the fight started on the 7th and the daughter told her mom to, some of this stuff is in quotes, which to me seems pretty apparent that these are like direct things that she said to the officers. Yeah, they Um, should be. So like, I'm doing air quotes. People can't see me, obviously, but she told her mom to get herself together and to cut it out in regard to her behavior. But her mom wouldn't apparently admit that she was not doing much other than laying around in bed all the time. So before she left or when she got back from work on the seventh, she asked her mom to get up, which her mom did, but apparently all she would do was pace around. She still wouldn't actually do anything. So she told her mom that she couldn't do it anymore, which she said she'd been telling her mom for over a year. And when the officers asked her like what her mom said in response, she said that her mom just said she understood. And so then the daughter gave her some tasks to do. So she would go and check on her mom every 15 minutes only to discover that she still hadn't done anything. And eventually she became really frustrated. She had a knife with her because apparently she was, she said she was cooking dinner, but there was. That's um, always (laughs) the excuse. I was cutting pomegranates. Like, buddy, really? Well, and I mean, back to the like scene and the evidence collected, there was no evidence actually. And I mean, not to say that maybe she was, maybe she hadn't gotten very far in the prep work, but there was no evidence of like dinner being made found at the scene. There were just some Corona bottles and limes on a cutting board. So she'd been cutting limes for her beer, evidently. Well, (laughs) could be dinner. Chance that was her liquid diet. You're just being judgmental as shit right now. (laughs) Unnecessary. So, and there were like lots of other knives found like near the cutting board, near the limes, like knives of different sizes. I mean, I don't know why I'm just, it's interesting stuff that I read when I was researching this. And there was also a knife sharpener, which I found to be a little spooky. So she told them she's making dinner. She has this chef's knife in her hand and she's kind of pointing it up at the ceiling, like kind of yelling at her mom, telling her to do stuff. And at this point she started poking her mom. That's how, and so the officers also had this in quotes, but I think they had this in quotes. Yeah, maybe because that's what the assailant said, but I also think they might've had it in quotes because like, (laughs) I think she was calling it poking, but I think that it was more like stabbing. Stabbing (laughs) is the word. 
The word you're looking for is stabbing. They made yes. a word for that. They made yes. a whole word mm-hmm. to encompass the action mm-hmm. that you're describing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So mm. it's a butcher knife, right? It's a butcher knife. Okay. It's a butcher knife. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they asked her why she took the knife into her mom's room. And she told them it was because she wanted to get her mom to do something. Eventually, upon further questioning, they did get her to admit that, yeah, she was trying to threaten her mom and scare her and like get her to do this thing she wanted her to do. So she kept going into her mom's room and poking her. And again, this kind of went on for a couple of days. So she told the officer she, on the ninth, when she got home late from work, she went in there and again, she was poking her mom. And she, by this point, told them that, and I I mentioned this already, that she was just trying to threaten her and she had no intention of actually killing her according to at least according to what she said so she's poking her mom poke is in these police reports so many times I literally should have just counted it was so many times so she finally went in there and she poked her mom a few more times in the left chest and one of the last times she poked her in the left chest poke I'm air quoting so hard right now because this poke was two inches deep and I think it severed her aorta and it caused her to spit up blood and she basically was dying after that point I can't Um, see my face right now but honey child (laughs) okay so let me let me run this by I'm I'm trying to catch up because I thought I knew this story but I honestly didn't know this this happened over the course of like 48 hours correct She's stabbing her yes. repeatedly. Yes. Can I can I ask you the million dollar perchance the multi-million dollar question? Ooh, okay. What is the task that she needed her mom to do that desperately? She wanted her so the final blow as it were was dealt when she asked her mom to eat and do the laundry when she left for work on the 9th at 3 p.m and when she got home at 10 p.m she found her mom was still in bed and had not eaten or done the laundry so she said she told the officers she just wanted to threaten her mom but I guess things got a little bit out of hand like I said and also the the really one I mean the really shitty thing this is all shitty but like one of the shitty things is that the mom was grabbing the knife to try to stop her daughter from poking her so her hands were all sliced up too but the daughter indicated to the officers that she didn't think her mom was scared of her and that she also didn't think her mom needed medical attention until the moment of the two inch deep stab that actually killed her she thought things were like just fine basically I had things to say but then they just they really just evaporated I'm so sorry (laughs) so so I don't really want to keep recapping it I think we all know where we're at in terms of the level of hell that we've reached so let me ask you this we've got a measurement on the wound that killed her Mm -hmm. do we have measurements on the other wounds what are the other pokes looking like they did an autopsy on the ninth and they're they indicated that most of the wounds were superficial. They, 
I was kind of disappointed. I was, I mean, not to be like a morbid creep, but I was hoping for more, like how they said there were so many abrasions and little cuts and, and tiny little nicks that they couldn't even count them. There was also a, a noticeable stab wound, a con- like of a considerable size to the right leg. The victim had seven bandages on her body. Two were actually on like her body body (laughs) and seven or, and five were on her three were on her fingers. And then there was one on her neck and one on her face, which I talked about earlier. There were superficial scratches all around her neck. And then the, the suspected lethal wound that I mentioned to the chest, it had gone through her lung, nicked the aorta above her heart. And like I said, it was approximately two inches deep. And then I also thought this was interesting because I know I mentioned earlier, the bruises that seemed to be in various states of healing. The victim also had seven healing rib fractures. They were mostly on the right side of her body and they were all in various stages of healing. So those were all the notes from the autopsy, which was done on on the ninth, like I said, starting around almost one o'clock in the afternoon. So well, about like 12 ish hours after the 911 call. There we were judging. And I mean, it sounds like she actually was poking her mom. I, yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> Cause there were only like two wounds that the medical examiner said were stabs. So the word we were actually looking for was torture. I'm glad we've gotten there. Yeah. 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 Mm. Pretty dark. Absolutely insane. And so all of the stuff that we basically just talked about, like her describing the poking and how long it went on for and what it was she wanted her mom to do. That was all the the afternoon of the ninth and the investigator that was interviewing her said that the longer the interview continued, the, the daughter started getting really distracted, confused, kind of irritable until she eventually broke down and just started saying, Oh my God. Oh God. Why? And stuff like that, like over and over and over. And they couldn't really get any other information out of her. Interesting. So I don't know if she was like realizing right. what happened, but she the also shock wore off. Yeah. And she also apparently told them that she wanted to stay in jail for what that she believed that she thought she deserved to be in jail for what she'd done. And she didn't want to go to trial. She didn't request a bond hearing. And I mean, things have obviously evolved since then. That was like, you know, the day of the day after, but at the time, that's apparently how she was feeling about the whole thing. Fascinating. So yeah, it's kind of sad. I mean, I just think it's sad. Like I said, I, I knew this person really well and she was funny and sweet and it's just so crazy. I mean, I feel like you never, ever, ever really know anybody, but I just, I would have never, I mean, we were all everyone that I was friends with in high school that I still talk to, we were all like, what the fuck did you hear about this? Like, we're all shook. Okay. So you, you keep dancing around it. You know, what, what was the explanation at the end of the day for why this had all come about? Why such a a sharp and dramatic contrast between the woman you knew and the woman that was here on July 9th of 2019. I I don't know. I mean, there's there's a lot of information in these reports and stuff that I read through. Basically, it it sounded like she was just exhausted and 
so her lawyer, and I mean, we'll talk about the trial a little bit. And there, there are questions that I have for you since, you know, a lot about this kind of thing. But in the trial, they said that she had experienced a crushing amount of trauma. That's a a quote from her lawyer that included sexual abuse by a relative and the death of her beloved father when she was only seven. So her dad, it was pretty traumatizing for all of us because he was such a fun guy. He was always there at the birthday parties, like making balloon animals, setting up activities, cutting the cake. And he died of a heart attack in the shower one morning, leaving the mom to kind of take care of so I didn't mention, but the the assailant did have three much older siblings, like much older to the point that her older sister was 18 when we were born, basically. And so there were always rumors, and I don't want to get into like small town rumors, but there were always rumors, as there are anywhere, especially in a small town, that her older sister was her mom. But her older sister is actually this really kick ass lawyer. She went to like Stanford and double majored in psych and political science. And then she went to Tulane. So she's pretty amazing. But the, you know, my friend, we were so much younger. She was basically an only child. She was super close to her amazing dad and was completely, completely, completely devastated when he died when we were so young. And so her lawyer said that that really, that that really heavily impacted her life. He also said that her mom took her husband's death very, very badly. She became very infantile and her daughter was left to take over the household chores and become her her mom's caretaker, even at that really young age of seven. So she was struggling. The daughter was struggling from depression and she began cutting herself. She became anorexic. She had multiple suicide attempts and she managed to cope by disassociating herself and repressing all of her bad memories. So her lawyer said she developed a serious mental disease and she was in the end unable to resist her impulse to stab her mom, even though she- impulses even though she didn't want to hurt her mom and she loved her mom ultimately and cared about her deeply yeah so so her lawyer then said that this argument and these this set of circumstances met the qualifications for the virginia insanity test so my question for you is what are the requirements for this test i mean and and who gets to decide that that a, you know, perpetrator of a crime meets those requirements. So I haven't done a ton of work with NGRI, NGRI being not guilty by reason of insanity, but mm-hmm. I did have an NGRI case in 2019, I think actually, it might've been 2018, the more I think about it, but I did have an NGRI case and, and the way that case proceeded Essentially, there there had been a request on our part. That's kind of how it starts. And by our part, I mean, at that point, I was representing that individual in private practice as a defense attorney. And so we, the defense attorneys, had made a request for the court, to the court, for our client to be evaluated for sanity at the time of the offense and competency to stand trial. Those are two separate things. I'll kind of set competency aside, but... Mm -hmm. There's essentially two different evaluations that can take place because you can be insane at the time of the offense, which is one issue, or, and kind of potentially and, you could also be incompetent at that point in time to stand trial. And 
that's also an issue in the case moving forward. So there's essentially two different avenues to create issues in terms of mental health. So all that being said, essentially, once the request gets made for the evaluation to take place, the court typically orders it. There's not a lot of objections to those sort of things. In theory, the district attorney could say something along the lines of, oh, we, we don't want that to happen. We're not okay with that. We object to the evaluation, but that's pretty rare. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, no, nobody wants to stand in the way of somebody getting treated or being identified for a, you know, some sort of disease or, or mental mm-hmm. health defect. So mm-hmm. then they get evaluated. They get evaluated typically by the kind of depends on the jurisdiction, but typically the local, they call them community services boards in the jurisdictions I work in, which is essentially the county mental health department. They have psychiatrists, psychologists, and they evaluate people to determine, you know, if they meet within these specific parameters of, you know, incompetency to stand trial or insanity at the time of the offense. So I think people's eyes are probably rolling back in their heads as I lawyer <laughs> speak to death. But so the long and the short of it is in, in our jurisdiction, essentially there's two different ways that a person can be considered criminally insane. Those two tests being the not in rule and the irresistible impulse doctrine. And so the one we're talking about today is that irresistible impulse. Doctrine. I recognize those words. I just yep. said them. <laughs> so exactly. So, so I the, get that. Yep. So the, the legal premise is essentially where a person's mind has become so impaired by disease that that person is totally deprived of the mental power to control or restrain his act. So it's exactly, I hate to be kind of anticlimactic, but it's exactly as it sounds. You you could not stop yourself from doing what you did. And that disease that's impacted the mind, it could be like kind of what we traditionally think of. Like they have some sort of like cancer or something like that, but it could also be like in this case, her lawyer's obviously saying, I mean, I'm asking because I have no clue. Her lawyer's obviously saying that she had, you know, kind of mental diseases, which is interesting to me because I think so many times in this country, it seems to me that like mental diseases aren't really respected or given the treatment or attention that they need. But in this case, it seems like they kind of are trying to give her that respect of all that she was going through mentally throughout her life. Right. So it's exactly, well, it's typically in cases where there's a mental disease, it's typically somebody, you know, narcissistic with psychotic mm-hmm. tendencies or they're, mm-hmm. they're schizophrenic with psychotic tendencies or mm-hmm. they're bipolar with psychotic tendencies or, or whatever the case may be. It's, mm-hmm. it's typically, I, I've actually, it's interesting. You, you pointed out, like, could it be a physical disease? I've actually never seen an NGRI case go hmm. for someone who has a physical disease because it's, it's more so that that you've lost that mental capacity. And so Mm -hmm. typically, typically that happens when you have a mental health issue or you Mm -hmm. have a mental, you know, a mental condition in terms of that, that disease that brings us within this insanity of defense. So I've never seen it happen in, in sort of a physical case. Interesting. So, I mean, there are a lot of different people that So that stuff that I just said was what her lawyer said. And it sounds like from what you were saying that it wasn't her lawyer who got to decide that, you know, she met the case for an insanity plea. It was actually psychologists that they worked with. Uh, So there was the clinical psychologist that they were working with. He conducted six interviews with the assailant. He said he had to conduct that many to I'm air quoting again, Sony air quotes (laughs) that no one can see to get it all out of her. 
He said that the assailant loved her mother and was loyal to her and that the stabbing was an impulse that she could not control due to memories of past abuse and the feeling that she was a failure because her mother's condition was getting worse. So he, he was the one, like you said, that believed she qualified for that insanity plea and he also said that she had recurring anxiety and depression. So he ultimately gets to make that call, like you well, said, correct? Sort of, sort of. I mean, so they get evaluated and then and then the case can kind of diverge in a couple of different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the evaluation could say that that person is perfectly wonderfully sound mm-hmm. and then the case would move forward without that consideration in place anymore. In the case that I handled, we assent- the evaluation was so, I'll say persuasive that we, all parties, well, both parties, in a criminal case, you have two parties, the state and the mm. defendant. Mm. So in, in our case, it was so clear that, that this 100% qualified for not guilty by reason of insanity. We agreed. Okay. We said, all right, that's evalu- that evaluation is all we need. We absolutely agree. We agree that he can be found not guilty by reason of insanity and move, okay. through the, move through the civil process that exists thereafter, because not a lot of people realize, but that's, that's not really the end of it. But in the alternative, people can disagree. The evaluation can come back. Well, it's... And the defense attorneys and the and the mm. state's attorneys can basically say, mm-hmm. no, they, we disagree with that evaluation. We want a second evaluation. We want a jury to decide. I mean, it, it can take a lot of paths from there. Well, here, it's interesting that you bring that up because like you just said, and I feel like this whole like state versus defendant thing is confusing to me because I feel like it's not ever that way. And like legally blonde or like CSI or all of the shows that you see on TV. So it's a foreign concept, a new concept for me that I'm trying to wrap my brain around, but it's interesting that you bring up sometimes all the parties don't agree because in this case, there was also a forensic psychologist testifying for the, for the state. And so let me tell you the story first. And, and then I have some questions for you that came up while I was reading this. So he interviewed the assailant, the daughter for about five hours total in three separate video conferences. So he, he never met with her in person. And this was because of COVID-19. I mean, basically is the bottom line because all of this happened, you know, right at that beginning, you know, COVID started like six, seven months after this happened. So he did agree that she suffered from major depression, anorexia, and PTSD, but he did not share her psychologist opinion that she qualified for the insanity plea. So this is a quote from him. He said, I have no question. She was in extreme emotional distress. There's no question. She had several mental illnesses and it was not her intent to kill her mother. I would be hard pressed to say that she was driven by irresistible impulses. He also said that she admitted to consuming some alcohol the night of the stabbing and that that can disinhibit impulse. So he also said, I do not believe her mental illness robbed her of the volitional control over her actions. So yeah, I mean, do you want to elaborate on that situation? I mean, you said in one that you had recently, everyone agreed. This is obviously the opposite. Everyone didn't agree. But for me, it also brought up an interesting question of legally, does it weaken his case at all that he only met with her, you know, for a few hours and that he only met with her virtually? I mean, I know 
COVID being what it has been and still kind of is, there was no way around that. But I just found that so interesting because her, the psychologist for the defense met with her so many times and spent so many hours with her. So legally, how does that look? You know, when you're comparing a psychologist who spent a few hours with her to someone who spent six full sessions with her over the course of weeks. Yeah. So one of the things that you'll hear, well, if you go to real court and don't get your court knowledge from TV, one of, one of the things judges love to say is that's, that's perfect cross-examination. So everything that you just kind of pointed out in terms of the fewer amount of times that he met with her, the fact he only met with her virtually, that was all perfect for cross-examination. And what I mean by that- Lawyer me up, bitches. (laughs) I'm ready. I'm ready. What I mean by that is that's exactly what her attorneys would have argued. Mm. There, the state's expert would have taken the stand and said all that he had to say. And the defense attorneys would have said, wait a minute, isn't it a fact that you only met with her virtually? Mm. Isn't it a fact that you only met with her on you know, negative 5% Wi-Fi. I I don't know. That's it. But that's absolutely what Mm -hmm. they would have done. They would have gotten Mm -hmm. information to try to discredit the findings that he made, because Mm -hmm. then it's, then it's up for the fact finder, whether that be the court or the jury to decide whose expert is right. Does this woman, does this woman suffer from that necessary disease in such a way that she had that irresistible impulse? Does she deserve to be found not guilty by reason of insanity beyond a reasonable doubt? So yeah, a lot of a lot of legal concepts at play when you're talking. They're very, very, very complicated cases. Mm, absolutely. So this kind of goes right in, in my opinion, to the judge's decision. And in the end, the judge gave more weight to the psychologist for the defense to his findings because of the fact that the psychologist for the state conducted his interviews virtually and never met with the assailant in person. He said that the psychologist for the defense developed a better relationship with her and had better insight into the potential for this irresistible impulse defense. So she was ultimately charged with second degree murder and stabbing while in the commission of a felony. And she was committed to the Virginia Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services for an evaluation, which was reviewed by the court in 2020. So the trial concluded in August 2020, and they did find her not guilty by reason of insanity. So I don't know what all of that means. I know that she is in that, in a behavioral health facility now. I know that she does communicate with her sister pretty regularly, that they they talk all the time over the phone and that she, her sister vis, visits whenever she can. But other than that, I, I don't know too much about what the future looks like for, you know, someone who is found not guilty, but still charged with second degree murder. That's Will very she weird. be out? Will she, I mean, she didn't go to jail, I guess, because she was, you know, found to be insane. Right. right. So, I mean, the, the concept of not guilty by reason of insanity is essentially when you look at it kind of very simply, it, it all kind of makes sense to me. If someone was insane Mm-hmm. If someone had no control over what they were doing, they shouldn't go to jail for it. They shouldn't. I mean, th- right. th- they just shouldn't. But we can't just say, all right, have a great day. Please don't poke anyone else's mothers to death. Mm. We have to have <laughs> an in-between 
solution for these circumstances. So in my jurisdiction, well, in the state that I practice, essentially, and I think in most states, we've had this conversation a lot, but I don't know how anything works in any other state because there's so much law in each state to begin with, it's too much to try to know more than one. But in the state that I'm in, once somebody is found not guilty by reason of insanity, that ends the criminal case. They can never be retried. They can never be put back to trial. That 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 ends. Is that the like double case. jeopardy or whatever? Right, exactly. Okay. Right. So jeopardy has attached because there's been a finding by a fact finder. Well, because the fact finder has been sworn in, they don't actually have to make a finding. But anyway, so what happens at that point is it converts into a civil case. It's still a two-party case. It's still the defendant and the Commonwealth, but it's a civil case, which essentially means the burdens are lower. So, and what I mean by burdens, I'll circle back around to that in a minute, but essentially at that point they get reevaluated, but they get evaluated for a different purpose. They get evaluated to determine whether or not that person needs to be committed whether that person needs to be conditionally released mm-hmm. or whether that person can be unconditionally released, which means released with no parameters or supervision, which is very, very rare. That's something that usually comes like at the end of tons of supervision and tons of services to make sure that person is stabilized. So mm-hmm. interestingly enough, in the case that I was involved in, which was a crime of violence, and it was a, it was honestly a very violent crime in which someone was dramatically injured. And my client at that time had actually ended up being injured himself from the dangerous situation he had kind of ended up in. But Uh what had happened at the time that we had agreed he was not guilty by reason of insanity, again, he was evaluated for that, whether he should be committed, whether he should be conditionally released. And his recommendation was actually for conditional release. He had been in in the mental health facility receiving treatment for such an extensive period of time, because these things do take time. He'd been mm-hmm. in there for months mm-hmm. that his evaluators actually said he's absolutely stabilized. He's absolutely in a position that he can go home on a conditional conditional mm. release program. Wow. And so obviously the state's attorney was like, absolutely not. So then, then things kind of shift in a different way. Then it's an argument about what this person's treatment looks like and what this person's treatment conditions look like. And the state's mm-hmm. attorney the state's attorney was like, absolutely not. He needs to be reevaluated. We're not agreeing to this release. And then we, we kind of continued down that path. So it's, it's an interesting scenario. There's definitely a lot that goes into it in terms of kind of the fight of the doctors, the fight of the experts. Again, if one expert says this and you disagree, you can have another expert say why. And then at some point, eventually, yes, in theory, she'll go home. Very interesting. I also find it interesting that I find it interesting. I almost, I don't know. I feel like an asshole, but I almost find it interesting that this insanity defense flew. And like I said, I knew this person and I'm, I was absolutely shocked when this happened. Like she's the sweetest, you know, she's almost like docile. Like you would never expect something like this, but I mean, what about those bruises in different stages of healing. What about those fractured ribs? I also found when I was reading the police reports that back in October, 2017, there was an adult protective services report from social services that involved physical abuse concerns for the victim. I mean, do any of those things play into that this might've been, and I guess it doesn't matter ultimately what was decided in court 
is like you said, that's it. That's what was decided. It can't be retried. And, and that's fine. You know, it probably shouldn't be. I'm sure the legal system is set up that way for a reason, but those things undoubtedly came up. I wonder why they decided that they didn't weigh in. That should have been information that would have been given to both evaluators and both evaluators would have been able to use that. I'm, I see, I don't know anything about, you know, psychiatry, psychology, any of that, mm. but I, you know, I know, I know process from being involved from the legal side of it, but mm-hmm. so in, in my experience, there definitely would have been, you know, a way that they use that information, whether it be confronting her with it, whether it be, you know, using that, cause there's different sort of like mini evaluations they do within the bigger evaluation, different Mm -hmm. tests and things that always make my brain turn into mush when I'm reading them in the big evaluation. (laughs) But yeah, there would have been things essentially that they, information that they received that they should have used in their interviews with her, in Mm -hmm. their evaluation of her, that, Mm -hmm. that made them take the positions they took. So interesting. But I mean, I hate to, I hate to say I'm not a mental health expert and then sound like a mental health expert, but, you know, I definitely think from my experiences as well, there can be almost like a continuing psychosis. You mm. know, if she's, if she's not being removed from that dangerous environment and by, and I say dangerous, not to, you know, sh- shift the blame or anything of that nature, but dangerous to her mental health. Mm-hmm. I mean, according to her evaluators, it was triggering according to her evaluators, it's putting her in this downward spiral. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. If she's not getting any relief from that. And she's not getting any mental health treatment. I mean, what's to say that she wasn't Yeah, in a spiraling irresistible impulse for months leading mm-hmm. up to the, the penultimate incident? True. That's true. Well, let me tell you some of my favorite things that I didn't throw in. Favorite? Um, Wait favorite, favorite? Favorite creepy things, sidebars that didn't make it in to our conversation so far. Oh, by the way, ME, I guess that's not the correct term. I don't know. Maybe you can correct me. I'm saying ME medical examiner, the person who actually did the autopsy and the like investigation on the scene, it was called a medical legal death investigator. I haven't done a ton of murders. So I've never honestly, heard that before. Yeah. I, I think we would call them a medical examiner <laughs> in my experience. So that person said that, that the, they suspected the victim had been there for quite some time due to the coagulation of blood around the body. And also based on manipulation of extremities and how they reacted while the victim was being moved. But they also noted that they didn't document post-mortem changes to the body, such as rigor mortis, algor mortis, and liver mortis. So I'm sure everyone knows this, but that's stiffening of the body, temperature change, and settling of blood based on the positioning of the body. So I thought that was time of death. I thought that was really interesting, I guess, because maybe, and in my mind, when I was reading this, I was like, okay, she confessed to doing it. They had her right there. So maybe they didn't need to do those things, but I thought it was really interesting that they didn't. So let me blow this up for a second, because this is something I actually meant to mention earlier. I think I just completely blanked on it for a minute, but you bring me right back around to it. So, you know, irresistible impulse in theory means that you didn't know any better that like you didn't know what you were doing was wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. In that moment, at least, but in my experience, and this may be more in terms of the other kind of realm of insanity law Mm -hmm. in our jurisdiction, Mm -hmm. but still one of the reasons, one of the ways to argue against insanity is to say, look, they knew they cleaned, they, 
they knew what they did was wrong. They, True. they tried to make it better. They obviously yeah. knew that they shouldn't have done they what put they band-aids did. on her. <laughs> so her time of death and how much time she spent cleaning up that scene before calling 911 it could be really important. Not, how's that not relevant? That's a great, great point. That's Wait a minute. great point. Mm, mm, damn so other other favorite things other sidebar favorite things they also asked when they arrived on the scene the officers asked the daughter if she had attempted to administer first aid or cpr after realizing that like it was a pretty bad stab, not just bad, a poke. Bad poke, um, bad poke. <laughs> and she told them that she didn't know how, so that instead she had immediately called 911 instead. So that that's interesting too, and kind of builds off, oh, here's another fun sound for the crowd. Choo-choo. <laughs> They're going to figure out live, in the country. Live on, live on the wrong side of the track man (laughs) trains and dogs barking you out in the country so and that kind of builds off like what we were just talking about because if the medical legal death investigator thought the body had likely been there for some time right um, it's interesting because you know the the assailant said that she called 911 immediately but also it was very apparent that she'd done a lot of cleaning up so i don't know just some i just thought it was interesting. I mean, my favorite favorite was the bloody handprint on the sheet. <laughs> but these are some of my other <laughs> favorite little side notes. So there was also an additional investigative report in the the files that I was reading through. And they actually, so the investigators actually conducted interviews with all of the last known contacts of the victim, according to her phone, her log of phone calls and texts from her phone, which they took from the scene. So on the day before she died, the last three people she talked to were her long-term accountant, her doctor, her, oops, I'm sorry, this is four people. Can't count. The last four people she talked to were her long-term accountant, her doctor, her best friend, and her sister. So the accountant said that she'd missed an appointment on the 8th, which I thought was interesting. The doctor said that she had an appointment scheduled for the 9th and that she didn't talk to her directly, but apparently when they asked the front desk staff, the front desk staff confirmed that she had called and canceled her appointment for the ninth, which I thought was interesting. And the doctor also told the investigators that the victim was regularly seen by two psychiatrists in a neighboring county or PTSD and depression. So then she talked to her best friend. They had known each other for 35 years. They regularly went to church together, but they hadn't been going to church together recently. They went to, this is so cute. They went to Wendy's for a lunch date every month, but, and the best friend also told the officers that when she went on March 31st to pick her best friend up for Wendy's birthday lunch date, the victim came to the door and said she couldn't go. She had bruises all over her face and arms, and she told her best friend that she had fallen. But apparently the best friend and some other friends had tried to talk to her about abuse, potentially stemming or, you know, involving her daughter. And she would just kind of shrug it off and say nothing was wrong. But on that same day, the 31st, the best friend stated that the victim seemed really nervous and kept looking behind her and kept her voice really low when she was saying that she couldn't go out for lunch. And then finally, her sister, who was who was actually the wife of a retired homicide detective, which is really cool. She 
also told the officers that her sister had severe depression and PTSD and that she was defensive of her children, loved them fiercely, would never say anything bad about them, and had only once in 2019 shared with her sister that her daughter, the the youngest daughter, the, the perp, that she hit her, but she wouldn't elaborate. And her sister offered to come and pick her up and move her back home to Ohio, but she was asked not to. So yeah, I thought those things were interesting. They're just things that I wanted to mention because they stuck out to me while I was reading the police reports, but they didn't seem to have a place in our story. But yeah, so those are my, my recap of my favorite little tidbits. So I'm going to jump up on a soapbox really quick and you can tell me to shut up if you want, but (laughs) domestic violence takes a lot of different forms. This is domestic violence. This is a family relationship that was getting out of control. And I am not here to pass judgment on any single person who did the best they could under imperfect circumstances. But I think we can use each experience in our lives to learn things. And what I've learned is that a lot of people are not aware there is an adult protective services, which is very similar to child protective services. Mm -hmm. And it exists for situations exactly like this. There's an, there's an adult person who's potentially incapable of caring for themselves, who you know, maybe in a dangerous situation with a caretaker, mm-hmm. whether that be family or not. If you see, I hate to be corny. If you see something, say something, it's our responsibility to keep each other safe because, you know, unfortunately, as we see in this case, sometimes our loved ones are not capable of keeping us safe and not capable yeah. of keeping, keeping themselves safe. So we've got to do that for one another. Yeah. That's so true. It's so true. If just one person had been a little bit more insistent, Cause it sounds like there were quite a few people. Um, and that's, it's easy to gaslight the friends, yourself. The yep. sister. It's easy to gaslight yourself. Oh, I'm thinking too much into it. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's no way, you know what, you know, what's better being sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sad. Oh, yeah. It's really sad. Cause you know, it sounded like while we were reading through it, like that's not the outcome anyone wanted, including, you know, my childhood best friend who ruined her life. I mean, lost her mom, ruined her life. It's awful. It's sad. Everybody loses. Yep. So yeah, that was our first. Oh, what a story. I don't want to do this anymore. I know it's so sad. It's really sad. (laughs) The crying, creepy music. So Uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel like we need some kind of happy thing (laughs) to end this with, but I don't have no idea what that happy thing could be. All right. Well, if we can't do happy, let's do, let's do cliffhangy. Who is, who's getting next? Ooh, who's next? Let me think. So next, Ooh, what do I want to say? He, he was a bright kid with by all accounts what seemed to be a fantastic future ahead of him new job with the money and the new car and the new house and drugs are bad okay are you gonna tell us is he the murderer or the murderee he no okay all right okay We'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens next week on the murderer, you know. Bum, bum, bum. So yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoyed our first 
full length episode. And don't forget that you can email us your stories, your thoughts, your deepest, darkest secrets at murderer, you know, at gmail.com. You can also check us out on the gram at murderer, you know, podcast and on Facebook at murderer, you know, podcast. So until next time. Oh.